0: I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. Now, we have a special edition of the podcast this week. I thought we'd take a step back from the news of the moment and take a look at the overall ICT industry and where it's heading over the next two years. Now, you will undoubtedly know of Kevin Block, um, a titan of technology in Australia. He was the Chief Technology Officer for Cisco for nearly 21 years until uh, 2020. Now he's um, set up on his own as an advisor with uh, Block Advisory. And he's put out what he sees as the top 10 trends in ICT over the next two years. And I asked Kevin to join us and take us through them. So, um, our first um, trend is in network and IT infrastructure, the so called infrastructureless enterprise. Talk us through that, Kevin.
1: Well, thanks, Graham. I think what I'm saying there is the convergence of cloud and 5G are having a bigger impact than any of us could have imagined as separate entities uh, over the last 10 years. I mean, we know cloud has taken many uh, corporations, at the high end all the way down to small business, uh, to infrastructure less compute and storage. But now what we're seeing is that's actually permeating out into the network infrastructure itself. So what I mean by that, I I have spoken to clients who are going to go, and I'm talking about at the top end of town, infrastructure free. And when I said, yeah, I get that in cloud, they said, no, 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 we're talking about the network as well. No more routers, no more switches, no more access points. We're going to be free of infrastructure in the future. Now, we're already seeing some of the vendors... Coming out with network as a service, and, and let's call that the sort of dress rehearsal. But the main game is 5G. And let's face it: do banks, miners, transportation companies really want to run networks? No, that's not their business. So I think this is a, one of the, what they say an inexorable trend that inevitably companies won't be running their own infrastructure. It will be provided by a service provider, a, la a telco, with a license. And uh, therefore, the sort of future is going to change quite dramatically. And I think it's going to, you know, the central th- theme underpinning this is going to be connectivity with 5G, cloud, as in public cloud, where most of your applications and workloads are going to be. Um, and then obviously sitting behind that is a lot of, artificial intelligence and capabilities there.
0: Okay. Well, that brings us to your next point. Um, In mobile, 5G becomes mainstream, more open, and eats into fixed-line services.
1: Yes. So 5G, you know, we've been saying where's the business case, and I think actually many telcos are still looking for it. It, 4G and LTE has done a fantastic job. We underestimate how good a job it's done. And it still actually meets most of the requirements. And as somebody once said, 5G isn't really for humans. Um, and, you know, there's a lot in that because we are getting a really good service, generally speaking in Australia and in many countries around from 4G, right? 5G does obviously give, give us more bandwidth, but really it's, it's real speciality if you will, or distinctiveness. Uh, is in low latency. But those applications are really not really about humans um, and much more about, you know, robotics and things like that. So that's the, the first point I, I'm I'm trying to make, and, and that is that, um, you know, it's, it's becoming mainstream just as a, another form of, of mobile connectivity. It's becoming um, more open because of the – it started off with technology – I'm um, saying, hey, you, you know, we can do better in the in the in the radio access network. But with more and more standards and more, more and more more vendors, uh, geopolitics cut in and said, you know, there was this line between the East and the West, and we can't, the West can't buy everything from the East, et cetera. And what's happened there is governments have made big investments in really deconstructing the RAN into what we now know as the open land, and it's starting to kick off. So that's what I'm referring to in terms of openness. And then in terms of fixed-line services, I mean, the one good business case for 5G has been fixed-line replacement. And I've always been a very strong advocate of using 5G as a fixed-line replacement, but I was blown away when I started reading numbers that suggested that by 2025, 50% of fixed connections in some countries will move to fixed wire. Now, that's a very big slice of the fixed line um, environment. So, yeah, I think, again, 5G really making some big impacts in, it, in our world.
0: Okay. Um, taking on to our, uh, moving on to our third uh, theme here on cloud and edge, um, you see cloud growth is continuing and intelligence spreading to the edge.
1: Yeah, we, I, I talked about this several years ago and we see this in in uh, anybody who's been in the technology business as long as I have and that's dating me will know that, you know, we move centralised and decentralised, centralised. So we, we've gone through a stage of centralising um, through the public cloud, through the top three and you know, Amazon, Google, Microsoft. Um, but uh, we are now seeing a shift to the edge because for a number of reasons, either you don't have enough backhaul uh, or you need low latency. And many of those applications are starting to really blossom. Um, We're seeing this in manufacturing, hence private 5G. Uh, We're seeing it with VR, or we'll talk about meta in in, in the metaverse in a moment. Um, So low latency is going to drive that. So it's moving to the edge. I think the other big thing about what's going on in cloud is is just looking at the capital um, investment, which has shifted. There's more capital investment going into cloud infrastructure now. Um. than there is in almost anything else in, in telecommunications. Um, and that, I think, sort of uh, transition happened last year. And they're saying that in the next uh, five years, you know, the expenditure is going to double to $350 billion. So essentially what, what's going on here is a lot of investment uh, by technology uh, companies that used to sell in the enterprise and the small business is now selling into the hyperscaler market and that's going a into the centralised public cloud and b into develop de- developing infrastructure at the edge.
0: Okay. Now, your fourth point regarding cybersecurity, and this is one with which I wholeheartedly concur, that we we have a unpredictable and unstoppable phenomenon here, and we really need a different approach in fighting back.
1: Absolutely, and and I think, and I've cited four areas that I think are clearly Uh, focal points going forward. Number one, zero trust. And zero trust has gone through almost three phases since going back about 15 years ago. But where it's at today, and if you you read the latest uh, NIST standard, you'll see that basically what they're saying is, assume you already have bad actors in your environment. How do you keep operations going? And I think that um, really challenges a lot of thinking uh, in terms of what you're protecting. I've always believed that you, you've got to protect your application. That's the most sacrosanct thing. Even the network, protecting the network isn't going to help you if you're, uh, your application is vulnerable. And I, and I actually think it's your application and your data. So there are trust with something um, that is really important. You cannot get it from one vendor. It's a journey uh, and it's non-trivial. The second one is uh, as you move to cloud, as you move to microservices, again, your attack uh, vector has just, uh, you know, the the, uh, surface area has expanded, so that's a major issue and there's a lot of investment going into the protection of microservices and Kubernetes, et cetera. The other one is software supply chain. Um, I think this is is really going to grow very rapidly in the next 24 months. Uh, governments. Uh, there was a meeting in Washington in um, in January with the leading tech vendors in terms of the software supply chain. What I'm talking about there is that today when you write code, sometimes 80, 90% of it is open source. Do you know who wrote that open source? Do you know where it was written? Do you know what malware is in that open source? And this is a major problem, and we've seen that with SolarWinds, uh, we've seen that with L4G, we've seen it Um, you know, in a a number of already attacks. So that's a big one. And then finally, we're seeing a, you know, with what they say is something like 10 new vendors every six weeks in cybersecurity, that is new startups. It's so complicated for any user to understand what to buy. So I think we're seeing a consolidation of vendors and we're seeing a consolidation of platforms and all the big names, if you look at all of the big names in cybersecurity today, they're acquiring lots of little um, and some, sometimes not so little uh, startups, you know, almost on a weekly basis. I think Google just bought Mandiant for $5-something billion. And I think we're going to continue to see that consolidation.
0: Okay, moving on to your fifth point, um, and it's about the transformation of telcos into the hyperscale age, and and specifically the admission that maybe they don't have all the answers for how to attempt this.
1: Yeah, well, this is a big one, and and I think this is a sleeping giant. Um, Obviously, the telcos know this, and the hyperscalers know this, and the question is, are they friend or foe? And I I thought that when AT&T handed over its network cloud business to, to Microsoft, to me, That was a very strong signal to the world that, you know, here we have one of the oldest, largest telcos saying basically that they're incapable or don't have the skills to build and own and operate its own cloud-centric infrastructure. They've handed the keys to to Microsoft. Um, And I think... That's going to happen more and more around the world, and the hyperscalers know this. And so, if you look at what they've been doing in the last few years, they've been rapidly building out their artillery um, or their capability in the in the telco se- sector, um, not just uh, you know in the core but all in terms of cloud-native capabilities, but all the way into the RAN and, and uh, into the open RAN, which is really open slather at the moment for them. So I think going forward, as I said in here, it is easier to predict the role of the hyperscaler providers in telecommunications than it is to predict the future of the telecommunications providers.
0: Interesting. Okay. Uh, moving on, point six: artificial intelligence, and you're observing that it's driving significant cost reductions.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this with GPT-3. So GPT-3 stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. And, uh, this is where there's been some massive developments uh, in terms of this engine that can basically take uh, a very small amount of input, right, that in text, uh, to develop uh, very strong capabilities in natural language, um, recognition, all the way through to protein folding. And What we're seeing uh, with GPT-3 and GPT-4 is imminent, is order of magnitude lower costs to train models. And what that means is we're getting close to, for example, being able to generate code through speech. In other words, I could ask for some software to be developed literally by talking to a computer and out source code. Um, that's already starting to happen. Now, that's going to get more and more sophisticated. And this is profound. I mean, we're also, and uh, I'm saying we, the, the industry is cracking uh, things like, you know, gen- genetics sequencing down to hundreds of dollars I think it was, we just broke the record at eight hours. I mean, in the 90s, that would have taken tens of years, and I think the estimate is about $3 billion to do the same thing. So we're seeing these really massive. These are not just little incremental improvements. These are, you know, two, three orders of magnitude in cost and time um, improvements, and this is going to be tremendous um, in terms of... Healthcare, in terms of a whole raft of, of applications, climate tech, et cetera, that you needed
0: Okay. Um, On to point seven. Um, you, you make the observation that gaming has very much become the center of the universe.
1: Yeah. Again, it's interesting when, um, you know, a company like Microsoft uh, puts down $75 billion uh, to buy Activision um, the way I put it, it was like detonating a bomb underneath the, the gaming industry. It was like what was that? And then by the, by the way, weeks out, you know the, the following week another five billion dollar acquisition was made. So I think people have turned around and said what's going on here and the, the, the reality is that um, and I don't know that many of you listeners know this, but gaming generates three times the revenue of streaming video, you know Netflix et etc, three times. And it's incredible, incredibly popular, um, I think there's something like three billion gamers on Earth, generating a lot of, a lot of revenue. Um, and so there's a lot of money in it, and uh, there's a lot of investment going in it, and there's a lot of interest in it. And it's not just games, you know, in terms of World of Warcraft, it's also East Forks, which is very important as well. And it's a precursor for the next points we're going to talk about.
0: Okay, which is the metaverse, and uh, you, you're, you're making a point that maybe there's more to the metaverse than rebadged virtual reality.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's really where it came from, but I think it's taken on a, a different form with even Facebook changing the name to meta, and, yes, I acknowledge that there's probably other reasons Facebook wanted to change its name, but, you know, when people like Goldman Sachs give a number or a value of the metaverse at $8 trillion, which is about the GDP of both Japan and Germany combined, one has to take this seriously, no matter how big a sceptic you are. I mean, we were uh, 10 years ago with more. You know, we, we thought Bitcoin was a scam, crypto was a scam, tokens are a scam. Well, those are trillion-dollar markets today. So woe betide those who dismiss the metaverse. And the metaverse does... And what's interesting about the metaverse is um, there's this big investment, yes, and there's this interest, yes, but uh, in in terms of telecommunications and the technology, we've really got to rethink how we deliver networks because it's not about speed anymore. It's about the user experience. It's about low latency. Um, Humans can't take less than, you know, 20, 30 milliseconds uh, latency when you've got glasses on. So, the, the way in which we build networks are going to have to transform to keep up with the metaverse.
0: Yeah, and, and that, that takes you to um, point number nine about Web 3.0. Now, I, I must admit, it's a term I only loosely understand. So, so please describe to us what Web 3.0 yeah. is all about.
1: And and really, Web 3.0, you know, we can talk about games and metaverse, but really, Web 3.0 is the computer science sitting underneath yeah. it. and. The, the way it was once described to me is Web 1 was about read, reading, read-only. Web 2 was read-write. We could not just uh, read from the internet. We could write to the network, and social networks um, is, a, is a really good example of that. In Web 3 now, we're we're looking at the ability to not just read and write but to own. So in the past, if you think about the big platforms like Google and Amazon and Microsoft – They have these platforms that they completely control and, um, you know, have sometimes come unstuck and caused a lot of distrust in the world. What we're seeing now is the computer science of the scientists, I think it started there, and the world have realised that we don't need to and cannot probably trust humans like we could in the past. In fact, we can use computers and algorithms and software and the blockchain which has a high, much higher levels of trust than, say, humans can have. So that's the basic underlying thesis uh, of Web 3.0, where we, we now don't have a centralized authority um, like a Google or a Facebook to control whatever it is. It could be a business, it could be content, it could be a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and it's really because I think there's been over the last couple decades, uh, this diminu- this reduction in, in trust in what humans and institutions have delivered. Mm.
0: Okay, now this brings us to the final point, and I think this is actually a, a, the key one, which is that there's an increasing shortage of global talent in IT, and and that's driving a move towards automation, isn't it? Yes,
1: it is, and, and it's interesting. Um, you know, in my opening uh, paragraph, I talk about, we're moving from digital transformation to just digital delivery and all leading companies are like you're kidding me we're not transforming anymore we're we're in it um and you know for example Commonwealth Bank said the other day they're one of the largest tech companies uh, in in Australia they got six and a half thousand people that are investing 1.5 billion right the, the, so that's 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 great we're moving to the digital world the problem is, It's happened really quickly and probably um, and has been accelerated by COVID and the pandemic. So we've all been caught short by how quickly this has happened. And by caught short, what I mean is we do not have sufficient skills and people um, who really understand what digital delivery is all about. I read a figure the other day that said 89% of applicants were not qualified for the jobs that are available to them. Um, So we've got a carving out of the the middle of the workforce, if you will, uh, where we've got a few people at the top who get and really understand digital and digital delivery. Um, And then, you know, there's a hollowing out in the middle where we just need a lot more people who understand things like uh, cybersecurity, cloud delivery. Um, and and workload management, data management, data store, et cetera. We are are very, very short, and every day there's something in the press around, you know, a shortage of skills. The second thing that I'm saying in here, if you go back again in the last 10, 20 years, a lot has been written about how machines and robots are going to replace humans. And there was this, you know, first it was about the technology, but then it was around the ethics And I think that argument is going to slowly subside, or quickly subside, depends on which way you look at it, because, well, we just don't have people. So it's no longer an ethical question, it's an existential question. And if we don't have people and we need to run our business, we better think very seriously about this stuff called robotics or robotic process automation, automation, whichever way you want to call it, um, where we can... Take tasks that humans could do and
0: automate it, and enable those people that we've got to be more productive. Okay, gotcha. Okay, well, look, thank you very much for that, Kevin. That's um, terrific. A distillation of uh, the next two years in tech and connectivity in twenty minutes—it's it's it's, uh, thought-provoking stuff. Now. If you want to read um, Kevin's paper on this, it's available at his website, which is blockadvisory.com. That's B-L-O-C-H-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-Y.com. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us on Day Live.
1: As always, Graham, thank you. It was a
0: pleasure. Just it. That's it for Day Live this week. Thanks for joining us.